0: My goodness, Brad and
1: Desi take a couple of days off and the world goes mad.
2: Yeah, what's up with that? Man.
1: Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. Because the world's gone mad. I got the feeling there's something right. I'm so scared in case I fall off
2: my
0: chair. Well, I'm
2: not scared. And
0: I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. To the left of me, jokers to the right Here I am, stuck in the middle with you Yeah. Yes,
1: I'm stuck
2: in the middle with you From Pacifica Radio's KPFK in, in Los Angeles This so is your broadcast you As heard on 90.7 FM in me, LA 91.7 FM KYAQ on the beautiful Oregon Central Coast okay. 93FM WLRI in lovely Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Coast to coast and around the globe on KPFK.org. On the Stitcher app, the TuneIn app on iTunes. Streaming on Progressive Voices Channel. On Netroots Radio. On Indie Media Weekly. FYI Nation. Nicole Sandler's Radio or Not. Radio Free Brooklyn and... Radio Sputnik 5 days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger journalist. Troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow from bradblog.com. Glad you could join us. Good to be back. Uh, had a, a few days off there. My uh, my great thanks to um, to Nicole Sandler for covering for us. It is good uh, good to be back though after a few days over the, uh, the over the Columbus Day holiday. Which I don't know about you, but for me, boy, uh, Columbus Day just gets here earlier and earlier every year, doesn't it? Uh, You know, waking up early, watching the parade, waiting for the end when Christopher Columbus appears on his sled pulled by a majestic array of enslaved Native Americans. It's so exciting to see every. Oh, hi, Desi Doyen. Hey. Welcome back to you as well. Desi Doyen, uh, you'll be here actually with our producer and my co-host on the Green News Report. You will be here, I think, if the radio gods are with us a little bit later for our Green News Report, which we don't normally do today, but because we were off last week, we did do a a Green News Report late in the week, but we didn't get to play it on the broadcast. That's right. So, a lot of the stuff in there... Uh, I think is is still absolutely relevant, is still completely uh, undercovered in the rest of the media. So hopefully we will have time for uh, for that a little bit later, if only because it gives us the chance to make fun of uh, Lindsey Graham.
1: Oh, and there's always more fun with that.
2: So uh, again, my thanks to Nicole Sandler of RadioOrNot.com for covering for us. and and by the way, I, I think uh, she said she was not feeling well yesterday. So I hope she is doing better today. She is right, uh, as you heard in that opening quote here, uh, man, man. So we go away and and, and she's in, I think uh, first day is Thursday. And, you know, they were supposed to have this, uh, let's call it routine uh, election, nominating election in the Republican Party in the uh, in the U.S. House for the House Speaker. And. You know, thought that was going to happen, although I had some questions about whether they'd be able to get the 218 votes they would need in the full House at the end of the month, but figured it looked like Kevin McCarthy was the odds on favorite to win the nomination, at least inside the Republican caucus. And then we wake up Thursday morning. My iPhone is going absolutely nuts with breaking news that Kevin McCarthy had dropped out of that race. And then, of course, the two school shootings that took place on the same day. And the news just devolved from there. So, you know, in one sense, I was happy to be kind of trying to get off the grid. In another, I would have loved to have uh, covered all of that breaking news. And Nicole was even kind enough to see if I wanted to come on my own show as a guest to comment on it but we really needed that time away uh, at least as much away as uh, those of us in the news biz ever actually get these days i suppose if i could only get rid of my iphone then i could uh, well we got to go up to the mountains next time get off the grid entirely so even the breaking news can't get to the iphones
1: actually i think that they can get to you up there now too really yeah there's nowhere to go. There is it's nowhere to go nowhere that you know where. Uh, not reachable by internet, <laughs> uh, by cell phone, or by the NSA. Well,
2: you know what? It's okay because it is actually these days kind of creepy when I end up in uh, someplace where there is no cell signal and, and no Wi Fi. It actually kind of makes me nervous. I actually kind of get uh, frightened that I'm missing something that actually matters, that that's actually important. In any event, you know, we had talked uh, the day before the day before I left uh, about how Boehner would remain the speaker of the GOP, the speaker of the House, if the GOP could not find the 218 votes that they would need for whoever their nominee might be. When they got to the full vote in the House and few had noticed at that point, but it seemed that while it was presumed that McCarthy would be nominated, I wasn't sure he'd be able to get those 218 votes in the full House. And if that was the case, John Boehner would stay on as speaker. And given the difficulties that McCarthy had been facing with the the Ben, his Benghazi uh, uh, commission uh, comments. The opposition from the far right of the party, it seemed to me that nominating someone who could get 218 Republican votes when the GOP nominee was put before the full House, that seemed a tall, if not impossible, order. And if it didn't happen, it meant John Boehner would remain Speaker. And now McCarthy has dropped out. Now it really seems impossible for the Republicans to find anyone to find anyone to become the next Speaker of the House, at least not without the help of Democrats. Though I can't imagine Nancy Pelosi has any interest in helping out the Republicans out of this pickle. So now what? No one has a clue. No one has a clue. If anybody tells you what is going to happen next at this point, they're making it up. Nobody has a clue. People are talking about Paul Ryan as if, um, you know, if they can only convince Paul Ryan Uh, To get in this thing, he will be the consensus candidate and everything will be fine. He'll be uh, nominated by a majority of Republicans and then he'll get 218 votes in the U.S. in the full House. I'm not sure that is true, even if Paul Ryan, who says he doesn't want to get in, even if he does get in. I'm not sure they will get the 218 uh, votes. Because if you look what the folks on the and I realize this seems redundant, but the far right of the Republican Party are now talking about, they think they think that Paul Ryan is part of that same establishment, uh, part of the Republican Party that John Boehner comes from, that Kevin McCarthy comes from, and I don't think they are going to support even Paul Ryan if he decides to get in, and that remains a big if. Well, in any event, uh, Nicole uh, covered all of this uh, very well over the last several days, and I suspect we'll be uh, covering it in the future, but I just wanted to ring in on that because... What we are now seeing is a party that is coming apart at the seams. And I've been warning you about this for, for years now, while the mainstream corporate media was, eh, you know, it's just disagreement between the left and the right, Republicans, Democrats, liberals and conservatives. No, this is a party off the rails coming now apart at the absolute seams. Just in the past few weeks, we've been talking about how they've got absolutely no governing philosophy in this party anymore, which is true. They don't. They pretend they're conservatives, but they are not. They are coming apart at the seams. We have a party that is looking at finding someone, anyone... To be uh, for, for the two most powerful positions in the free world, the president of the United States and the speaker of the U.S. House. Those two positions are two of the most powerful positions on the entire planet. And the Republican Party can't seem to come up with a nominee for either of those two jobs for either president or speaker of the House. It is absolutely amazing to watch uh, and indicative of a party that is falling apart at the seams. Not a party that can't agree, not a party that sees things different ways. A party in complete and utter collapse. It is amazing. Anyway, as I say, <laughs> Nicole covered it. I suspect we'll cover it in uh, more in the days ahead. But we got a lot to discuss uh, today, and even with this broken system, this broken Congress now that cannot do anything, cannot even get a Speaker of the House, the question once again arises, can anything get done? Well, yes, yes it can. Not enough, but a few things can get done, things that can be done without Congress, things that require only, for example, executive rulemaking. By the president, Hillary Clinton has put forward some things that she would like to do with executive power if she becomes president when it comes to, for example, gun safety issues. Obama is reportedly considering adopting some of those uh, things that Hillary has put forward, as uh, Nicole Sandler discussed on the broadcast yesterday. But Obama is already taking a number of other steps via executive action on immigration, of course, uh, on rulemaking within the EPA, his clean power plan, new rules for ozone emission and, uh, and oil refineries uh, that we've talked about in the Green News report. And the handling of and use of pesticides, which we will also discuss in our Green News report a little bit later today. Uh, he's also make, making changes to the criminal justice system. And to that end, some actual substance has happened amid the GOP carnival slash soap opera over the last several days. The Justice Department has announced changes to criminal sentencing that will lead to the release within the next few days of some 6,000 inmates incarcerated for years for nonviolent drug crimes. And we will speak with Michael Collins, of the Drug Policy Alliance uh, shortly about what those changes are, what effects they may have on, uh, on criminal justice reform overall, and what still needs to happen to roll back the extreme failed war on drugs and mass incarceration policy that this nation has been running over the past three decades or so. So Michael Collins will be joining us to discuss that. But first, some democracy news as Democrats now prepare to... Uh, to finally hold their first presidential nominating debate on Tuesday night in Las Vegas. Uh, We will have, of course, full coverage of that tomorrow. I think we're going to be joined by our old friend, uh, Heather Digby-Parton, who uh, has joined us uh, so far after uh, the Republican debates. She will be joining us, as well as, I think, Eric Bullard from uh, Media Matters for America so I'm looking forward to their analysis of the debate and of what uh, may actually be a substantive debate. We'll find out. But today, uh, some some quick voting news, because debates don't matter a whole hell of a lot. If people can't actually vote and, you know, have their votes counted and have their votes counted accurately and have their votes counted in a way that they can know that they've been counted accurately. So to that end, we've got quite a few stories now. Around the country uh, today, and over the last uh, last several days, on Saturday, California Governor Jerry Brown signed a bill that will allow the state, our state, my state, out here, very proud of this, uh, that will allow the state to automatically register millions of residents to vote using. Their DMV records, when they go to the driver's license uh, bureau, they will automatically be registered to vote starting in 2016. Every eligible California citizen who goes to a DMV office to get a driver's license or renew one will be instantly registered to vote unless he or she chooses to opt out. Currently, as Secretary of State Alex Padilla out here notes, citizens are currently forced to opt in to their fundamental right to vote through registration. He adds that we do not have to opt in to other rights. We do not have to opt in to free speech or due process rights, only the right to vote. And he says that should be no different. You shouldn't have to opt in. Yes, I'd like the right to vote, please. That you should automatically uh, have that right. Right. What will result here if this goes forward now as uh, as has been signed by the, uh, the the governor what will go forward here is uh, as many as 6.6 million eligible but currently unregistered voters in the state of uh, of California will become registered 6.6 million this would be the largest voter registration drive in this country in decades perhaps uh, since the, the Voting Rights Act itself was, was passed in, uh, in 1965. Just over 42% of eligible voters turned out in last fall's election out here in California. We've got a, a dismal turnout rate in L.A. County, the largest voting jurisdiction in the nation um, where we are here. Just 31% of registered voters uh, cast a ballot. Uh, automatic registration is believed to be beneficial to voters of color. Currently, only 62.8% of Latino and 50.7% of Asian American residents are registered in California. And uh, turnout is uh, even more dismal among those groups. Just 20, uh, 28% of Latinos, who are who are now the largest demographic group in the state, only 28% of them cast ballots in uh, in 2014. Although, I don't know that this will actually increase turnout in one regard, because if you have more people registered... Your turnout percentages are going to be even lower, it seems to me. So we will see. In the meantime, of course, uh, the right wingers are preparing to flip out about all of this, because you know that's what right wingers do. Uh, and so, to that end, over on Fox News, they they hold out. Uh, Judge Andrew Napolitano, who is supposed to be their libertarian, who is supposed to be all about freedom, although they keep him segregated over there in Fox Business n- News until they need him. And then they pull him out to the Fox uh, channel. And what he said uh, seems to be decidedly unfreedom like in this uh, in this interview with with uh, Steve Ducey on Fox this morning. The state of California has passed legislation that will automatically register eligible
0: voters when they obtain or renew a driver's license. Governor Jerry Brown says it's a way to increase voter turnout, but critics warn the measure could add millions
2: of illegal people to the rolls illegal because the people. state allows undocumented aliens to get driver's licenses. Illegal people, oh no. That's the problem. Isn't it
0: Judge Napolitano? Yes, yes, good morning, Steve. Yes, it is a problem because the other states including our own home state of New Jersey mm-hmm. which permit registration at the time you get a driver's license have you go through another procedure in which you have to demonstrate citizenship. You got to by- prove you're here legally. Correct, correct. Uh California it's one procedure. You may not even know that when you get your driver's license you are also being registered to vote. And there's no requirement of proof of citizenship. What's the significance of proof eh, of citizenship? Wrong. All 50 states limit voting to citizens except when The state allows you to sort of sneak in without proving your citizenship by getting a driver's license instead. No, no,
2: no. Okay, no, 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 no. Uh, Andrew Napolitano, Judge Napolitano, you are absolutely lying. You are lying. You are misinforming Fox News viewers. No, you don't get to uh, register to vote as long as you have a driver's license, even if you are a non-citizen in the state of California. And to confirm this... I contacted uh, Dean Logan. He's a registrar, recorder, county clerk out here in Los Angeles County. As I say, the largest voting jurisdiction in the nation, certainly the largest in and therefore obviously the largest in California to ask him about this, to ask him about Napolitano's comments that you no longer need to be a citizen in the state of California. All you have to do is get a driver's license. He replies uh, to me in part He says California DMV distinguishes between licenses and state ID cards issued to citizens and to those who are non citizens. The new motor voter law only applies to those identified by DMV records as meeting the eligibility requirements to be registered to vote, including citizenship says County Clerk Dean Logan. So you also, you know, you have to be uh, 18 or older as well. They can't give you, let you vote if you're 17 years old. So you have to meet all of those requirements, he says. He goes on to say uh, the law specifically mandates that distinction and the adoption of regulations to ensure against registration of non-eligible persons. The contention that the law automatically places non-citizens on the voter rolls is False. That's the statement from Dean Logan, registrar, recorder, county clerk of Los Angeles County, sent to me here at, uh, at the Bradcast at Bradblog.com within the past hour. So Napolitano and Fox News are lying to you when they tell you that all you have to do is get a driver's license and you get to vote. But it gets worse what uh, Napolitano goes on to, uh, to confuse Fox viewers about. And one of the one of the re- things they look to is the Supreme Court in the past has said that the right
0: to drive in the United States is fundamental. However, they don't say you have to be an American citizen per se. But what about the right to vote? You know, the... There's a lot of debate, without getting too academic, about what the right to vote is. Is it a fundamental right that comes from our humanity, like thought and speech and association and worship and self-defense? Or is it a privilege given by the government? In my view, the Supreme Court has wrongly said it's a fundamental right. And once it said that, states like California decided to allow people to vote who aren't qualified by law to vote because but those are of first this fundamental act. Ad-
2: wrong. A complete and utter lie. Again. So, first, Ducey says the right to drive in the United States is a fundamental right. I don't know about that. I The, the Supreme Court, uh, he claims that they found that. I've never heard of that. I think that driving is a privilege that can be revoked at any time. So I don't know where they, you know, maybe I'm wrong about that. I don't follow that. But as far as the right to vote and the fundamental right to vote, Judge Napolitano is saying, no, it should not be a fundamental right. Really? Really, Judge? Really, Judge Freedom Boy Napolitano? It's not a fundamental right to vote in this country? And he further goes on to misinform viewers that states like California decided to allow people to vote who aren't qualified by law because it's a fundamental right. Totally wrong. Totally making that up. Totally pulling that out of his rear end. It's unbelievable. Are you kidding, Judge? Uh, Des, we got to see if we can get Napolitano on the show. (laughs) I'm not kidding. I I mean, that's that's just insane what he is uh, blathering on about. It's just wrong. Anyway, a little bit more from the
0: judge. The those aspect. are for state elections. For any election but in California. But it's against the law on federal elections. Yes, it is. But there's really no way to monitor it. So if you are an illegal alien no. in California, get a driver's license, register to vote. You can vote in local, state, no. and federal elections in California. And those votes count. Interesting It's stuff. almost impossible to monitor this if the state sure. is going to provide shelter for illegals to vote. And so
2: that's what's going to happen out in California. Yeah, that's what's going to happen out in California. Now, uh, I suppose it's possible some people could slip through that system. But as you heard, Dean Logan uh, gave that statement. I think it's an exclusive statement to the broadcast here that, no, California DMV distinguishes between licenses uh, that are issued to citizens and those to non-citizens. So Fox News, you'll be shocked to learn, has been misinforming you on that point um uh, speaking of misinforming you on that point a few more voting stories here that i'd love to try to get to before we uh get to michael collins uh chris kobach oh brother the uh, secretary of state of uh the state of kansas the otherwise great state of kansas has been uh, lying about things like voter fraud for years he ran his entire uh campaign on that and Uh, Since coming to office as secretary of state, he's found uh, almost no voter fraud whatsoever. He has managed, however, to keep tens of thousands of perfectly eligible uh, uh, residents, citizens uh, in Kansas from being able to cast their vote because they were not able to go out and, and spend money to get the documents to prove that they were citizens. So he's presuming them guilty. Innocent until proven guilty. Innocent until proven guilty. He's saying they're guilty unless they can prove their innocence, unless they can prove that they are citizens somehow. And if they can't, they don't get to vote in Kansas. And we're now looking at about 30,000 registered voters who are not allowed to vote in state elections thanks to Chris Kobach. As his reward for keeping people from voting, the state legislature and the governor, Sam Brownback, has now given Chris Kobach... Uh, the ability to prosecute. He now has the power of prosecution, the only secretary of state in the country to have that. He was granted the power to prosecute. And now he has announced uh, in, in an interview that um, by early next month, they will uh, he will finally have some prosecutions. Uh, I think it's uh, three people. We have limited detail on what they are. But earlier this summer, he was talking about instances of double voting He says it's easy easy to get registered in two different states, and that's not a crime. What is a crime is going ahead and voting in both states, and that does happen with some regularity. And he says we have to take uh, measures to deter that crime, and uh, when people do double vote, that they pay a fine. Well, that's true. They should. That is illegal. Um, Kobach said there are 100 potential cases of double voting from the 2014 election, of course, mind you. Uh, I presume he's talking about Kansas, and he found 100 potential cases out of hundreds of thousands, if not millions of votes cast. But still, that's illegal. Um, he claimed earlier this year that uh, he, he gave this information to uh, the prosecutor and the, the U.S. district attorney, and the U.S. district attorney failed, d- refused to prosecute. And that's why he needed that's why Chris Kobach, the secretary of state, needed the power of prosecution himself. Now, the U.S. District Attorney Barry Grissom said he had received no such references for prosecution from Chris Kobach. So Kobach seems to have been lying about that Um, in any event. In addition to proof of citizenship, which is keeping people from voting in Kansas, uh, you also have to have a photo ID now. A handful of of photo IDs that many people do not have. The thing is, these double voting cases, a photo ID has nothing to do with that. You can still have a photo ID, a driver's license, and still be able to vote in two states illegally. So having photo ID does not keep you from double voting. Not having uh, evidence of, of citizenship That wouldn't keep you from double voting. You could have evidence of citizenship and still double vote. So uh, Chris Kobach um, is rather amazing. He has not been able to find any evidence, at least to date, of the type of crimes that he pretended merited all of these restrictions on. Yes, the fundamental right to vote, Andrew Napolitano. Fundamental right. Okay, I had hoped to uh, beat the hell out of Jeb Bush as well for a statement that he made about the Voting Rights Act uh, and give you some good news about Alabama. But I can't right now because we're short on time. We'll we'll get to it uh, later today or later this week. Michael Collins is standing by from the Drug Policy Alliance. We're going to take a quick break and talk with him about 6,000 prisoners who are about to be released to your streets. Are you scared? I bet Fox News wants you to be. I'm Brad. This is your Bradcast. Stay tuned.
3: back
2: to your Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com with you here. The U.S. Justice Department is set to release about 6,000 prisoners uh, early in the largest one-time release of federal inmates, according to the Washington Post last week. Uh, the release, scheduled for between October 30 and November 2nd, is an effort to reduce overcrowding and provide relief to drug offenders who received harsh sentences over the past three decades, the inmates will be set free by the department's Bureau of uh, Prisons. Most will go to uh, halfway houses and home confinement before being put on supervised release. The early release follows action by the U.S. Sentencing Commission, an independent agency that sets sentencing policies for federal crimes. They have uh, this panel has reduced the potential p- punishment for drug offenders. Last year, and has made that change retroactive. Now, the commission's action is separate from a separate effort by uh, President Barack Obama to grant clemency to some non-violent drug offenders, an initiative that resulted in the early release of 89 inmates. Well, that's good news, but man, it's nothing compared to 6,000 at this point that the uh, sentencing panel has now estimated. Uh, Could be released. They also find that uh, the uh, change in these guidelines could result in some 46,000 of the roughly 100,000 drug offenders uh, in federal prison qualifying for early release. The 6,000 figure, it would be the first batch in that process. Reuters reports that there are some 206,000 inmates in federal prisons. That's up from 25,000 in 1980. You got that over 200,000 inmates in federal prison up from just 25,000 in 1980, what, 35 years ago, Uh, according to the Bureau of Prisons website. There were a total of one and a half million inmates in federal and state prison at the end of 2014, according to the Department of Justice. The Drug Policy Alliance, however, an advocacy group which welcomes the move, said that it was no substitute for a systemic Makeover. Michael Collins, the group's policy manager, said in a statement that Congress still needs to pass comprehensive criminal justice reform. Well, as we talked about in the past segment, uh, getting Congress to do anything, to pass anything at this point, as dysfunctional as they are, is no easy feat. But here to talk about all of the above is Michael Collins, policy manager for Drug Policy Alliances. Office of National Affairs in Washington, D.C., where he works with Congress on a wide variety of drug policy issues, including sentencing reform, marijuana reform and related budget issues. Michael Collins, sir, welcome to the broadcast.
3: Thanks for having me.
2: Great to have you here, sir. First, uh, can you explain I want to talk about first what the actual policy change is that will result in these uh, 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 prisoners being let free, and then I want to talk about your concerns uh, that it doesn't go far enough, and what needs to be done in the future. So first, explain what is the new policy, and how does this result in uh, in change sentences for the uh, for six thousand and maybe up to forty six thousand inmates.
3: So um, last year, the sentencing commission, which as you point out is a, an independent body charged with um, drafting guidelines for sentences, so when a judge um, sentences an individual; they will normally refer to the sentencing guidelines to decide um, the punishment. You know, and, and, and sometimes it's related to, in the case of drugs, quantities and amounts. And so, really, there's a chart which judges are consulting before they make the sentences. Um, last year, the sentencing commission voted to, um, you know, downgrade some of the guidelines and essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, Moved the the guidelines down a few levels, um, so that um, you know certain individuals who were uh, given sentences would then be able to apply and have their sentences reduced, and that's the retroactive portion mm-hmm. that you mentioned. And so all this happened um, last year, and the sentencing commission, you know, made its decision. Congress had the opportunity to block that decision. Congress did not block that decision, and so. You know, what we're seeing now is um, that decision go into effect, and there's been a very slow and long and deliberate process um, involving these um, 6,000 individuals that, that, that will be released. I want to stress that this is not a jailbreak, and this is not you know, um, <laughs> opening the gates and letting any individual out the door. There's been um, a process whereby each of the individuals have uh, applied to judges, and Asked for their sentences to be reduced, prosecutors have weighed in, probation officers have weighed in. Um, it's been a very long and, and, and deliberate process, mm-hmm. and so the culmination of that is um, the release of these 6,000 prisoners um, later this month.
2: And and, uh, and they say that could go up to as many as 46,000. Is that a matter of reviewing? Uh, those sentences, those other cases—is this just sort of the first tranche of of, of people they've been uh, inmates they've been able to review for release?
3: Yeah, that that's that's my understanding over here. This is just mm-hmm. the first tranche of, of prisoners. I think They anticipate that possibly another um, eight thousand or so may be released um, around this time next year, and eventually we may end up seeing somewhere in the region of forty-six thousand people be affected by these changes. But this is, you know, as you say, very different to clemency. It's very different to the systemic reform that we want to see. And, you know, it's really, it's not about um, you know, wiping records clean or even, you know, letting people uh, out of jail long mm-hmm. before they should be. Um, it, it's more about, you know, small reductions across the board for a certain number of individuals and then those individuals being able to apply for the reduction and judges and, and, and public officials and law enforcement making sure that these individuals are not, you know, a harm to society mm-hmm. and so on, and therefore um, that individual then merits release.
2: So, so this would be a case, for example, just to sort of uh, so people understand, uh, you've got these minimum sentences that have been put in place. So uh, uh, convict A commits a crime with a certain drug and... Uh, the judge is required to give them, let's say, ten years for this particular for this particular crime. And now that number has been changed from ten years to five years. I'm just making up these numbers, but has been changed from ten years to five years. And you've got somebody who was previously sentenced to those ten years, who has already served more than five years, more than the new minimum. Is that sort of the type of uh, 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 person we're we're looking at who is being released that, under that's this?
3: That's it that's more or less the okay. case, except um, the sentencing commission cannot change mandatory minimum sentences. That's ah. Congress's job, and I'm sure we'll touch on Congress's mm-hmm. role in this equation. But the sentencing commission, you know, has new guidelines that essentially, um, you know, serves as, as an instruction mm-hmm. to the court. And so, as I said previously, a judge had been looking at the chart and saying, for example, if someone was dealing in you know 80 grams of heroin then they would be sentenced at let's say for example mm-hmm. um you know five years now the guidelines say okay if you're sent if, if you're dealing 80 grams of heroin um you're going to be sentenced for four years i'm just throwing out examples right. here sure. um and so that person therefore would have a one-year reduction in mm-hmm. their sentence and let's say that person has served four years already then they are eligible for release mm-hmm. but i stress the reduction itself is not automatic. To get that reduction, you have to petition a judge, you have to wait for the process to move forward, and the judge ultimately has to look at your record and, and, and take in the opinion of prosecutors and, and, and probation officers, and then decide, okay, this person is eligible and, you know, is, is so. going to, um, you know, not not, not provide any harm to the public and therefore can, can be released.
2: So we're not looking uh, at uh, opening up the jails, 6,000, later 46,000 dangerous inmates are going to be roaming the streets. These are people who, uh, in addition to the sentencing guidelines uh, changing, they're also being overseen as far as, uh, you know, if they are eligible, if they are a threat to danger to society and so forth. And by the way, Michael Collins, you mentioned that uh, Congress had the ability to, uh, to strike down these new guidelines, and they did not. And I don't know if it's because of Congress uh, and their current dysfunction or because they actually uh, support these changes. Why did they not turn down these uh, these uh, new guidelines? Is it because they're dysfunctional, or is this something they actually want to see happen in, in Congress?
3: Well, you know, I would... I would... I don't want to defend Congress's dysfunction um, from here in Washington, D.C. Uh-huh. Um, you know, I'm sure that's that's clear, um, you know, across the country that there is a dysfunctional, uh, we have a dysfunctional Congress. Having yes, said do. that, there is a, you know, strong bipartisan movement for criminal justice reform and for sentencing reform. Uh-huh. Um, and, you know, what the Sentencing Commission has done is not out of step with what, Politicians are trying to do um, Republicans, uh, Democrats, liberals, Tea Partiers, hardcore conservatives, old-school law and orders, You know, you, na- you name it. There's this broad bipartisan momentum to do something on criminal justice reform. So when uh, you know a, a, an entity such as the Sentencing Commission um, does take action, then that is not something that is out of step with what Congress it's, itself is, is trying to do.
2: And that that's actually a rather amazing part of this story because this seems to be one of the very few issues that you actually do have some bipartisan agreement. You you cited uh, Michael Collins uh, or at least the Drug Policy Alliance uh, cited uh, in applauding the uh, the move by the Bureau of Prisons. You also cited the bipartisan group of senators announcing a historic deal on criminal justice reform. And uh, rounding out a negotiation process that had lasted almost five months, and you point to spearheaded by Judiciary Committee Chairman Chuck Grassley, Republican of Iowa, and uh, involves a bunch of Democrats as well. So, what is uh, their historic deal, and what can we look forward to? And I and I assume when you guys are calling for more action to be done, this is what you're talking about: Congress actually taking action. Tell tell us about what their planned reform is, and if you think it will actually move forward, even in this broken Congress?
3: Well, well, the backdrop to this is obviously this skyrocketing prison population, this mass incarceration problem that the U.S. has, the off figure of the U.S. having. No, 5% of the world's population, but 25% of the world's prison population. And, you know... the and, and, and that, of, Actually, let me
2: repeat that, Michael. Uh, 25% of the world, a quarter of the world's prison population is here in the U.S., even though we only have 5% of the world population. Okay, press on. I just wanted to underscore that <laughs> point. Yeah,
3: it's definitely worth underscoring. Yeah. Um, and, 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 you know, the Sentencing Commission definitely deserves to be applauded for what it is doing, but at the same time, you know, it's it's a drop in the bucket compared to the overall prison population, Mm -hmm. and it's drug offences and the kind of hysteria around drugs in the 80s and 90s during both the Reagan and Clinton administration, and I I, I stress that Democrats and Republicans were guilty of this, Mm -hmm. where um, laws were introduced, mandatory minimum sentencing was introduced, and we saw the prison population go through the roof. And until, you know, we can have, you know, the president do clemencies and we can have the Sentencing Commission change its guidelines, but Congress really has to tackle this issue head on. And what we saw, um, I believe now two weeks ago, was uh, a bipartisan group of senators announcing, uh, you know, what we called a historic deal on sentencing reform um, and criminal justice reform. And so... The deal itself is fairly broad. It would involve reductions in mandatory minimum sentences. It would um, give an expansion of um, judges' discretion so that they could sentence people below the mandatory minimums. So it would expand re-entry program. Um, it would um, expunge certain records for juveniles. End juvenile solitary confinement. A whole range of issues. A fairly like sweeping piece of legislation. And the most important thing about it is it really has legs. You're right to identify the fact that there are not many issues that Republicans and Democrats agree on. This may well be the only one, and this may well be the only big thing that Congress does um, during this session. And we have buy-in for this type of deal at very high levels within the Republican and, and Democrat party. You have... John Cornyn, who is the number two Republican in the Senate signing on to this deal. Chuck Grassley, who is the head of the Judiciary Committee, Mm -hmm. a Republican from Iowa. And these guys are not sort of new Tea Party guys. They're old school law and order. John Cornyn was the uh, Attorney General in Texas. Chuck Grassley, you know, was in the Senate when a lot of this legislation was written in Mm -hmm. the 1980s and 1990s and he supported it. And they're having this sort of, um, you know, come to Jesus moment where they've realized that things have gone too far and it's time to reduce the prison population. And on the Democrat side, you know, we have folk like Senator Chuck Schumer, who again is a very sort of law and order focused New York senator, who's, you know, set to be the head of Mm -hmm. Senate Democrats. And then people like Dick Durbin, who is the number three Democrat in the Senate, um, all on the relevant committees, all in very powerful positions. And therefore there is a lot of um, optimism that this is the type of deal that would land on President Obama's desk and, and and get his signature.
2: Although we've seen that if the uh, so-called Tea Party, the so-called Freedom Caucus in the House wishes in the US House wishes to hold uh, hold things up, they can. They can pretty much hold up anything even, you know, the election of a new House speaker. So is there a uh, also a Tea Party movement uh, Freedom Caucus movement in the U.S. House that supports this same kind of reform? I know uh, Rand Paul has been outspoken about this in the Senate, but is there also a contingent in the U.S. House that would, uh, would actually usher this through as you see it, Michael Collins?
3: Yes, there is, and this is why, you know, there's a lot of optimism around this. A lot of um, Republicans that are kind of part of this Freedom Caucus mm-hmm. are also on board with sentencing reform, and for them this lines up very well with their views on small government and individual mm-hmm. liberty and also, you know, the kind of religiosity around second chances and and, and, and you know, not punishing people too much. Um, you have buy in from um, you know, folk like Raoul Labrador. Mm-hmm. Um, you have buy in from other libertarian uh Republicans there, you know, people like Justin Amash, um, you know, these these same guys who are sort of quoted as being behind the removal of, of, of Boehner and behind the you know, what happened with Kevin McCarthy last week, those guys are on board with this. And, and again, like I'll say, leadership as well on the Republican side of the House has been on board with this. You know, if if we do end up with someone like Paul Ryan as, as House Speaker, you know, he's been a strong proponent of, of sentencing reform. So, you know, we're in a good space here. I mean, it's it's Congress yeah. is Congress and things I can always... Go wrong, um, but like, I, I, I'm I'm more optimistic than ever. That you know that's
2: that's encouraging, and uh, it's good to see something, almost anything, move forward with with some substance in this particular uh, Congress, uh, Michael. I've got just a just a minute here, but I want to very quickly. If I can get a response on on, on two points, uh, one, and I haven't heard this yet, but I, I suspect we're going to when when uh, we get down to brass tacks on passing this uh, reform. Uh, You know, we hear over and over that crime is drastically down since the 70s and 80s. We don't need these radical sentences anymore. Um, I'm sure people are going to say, well, it's down since the 70s or 80s because of this radical sentencing, because we got all the bad guys off the street. How do you respond to to that?
3: Well, I mean, I think there'll be numerous studies done that show that there is, you know, in fact, no correlation between... Um, the harsh sentencing in the U.S. Mm-hmm. and um, you know the, the the drop in crime. And you know one of the challenges what you know we're facing now is that some people are saying, well actually crime has gone up, and therefore we shouldn't do sentencing reform. So when set, you know when crime is down we shouldn't do sentencing reform, and crime is up we shouldn't do sentencing right. reform. At the end of the day, um, you know neither argument holds much water, and I think you know smart people. Smart politicians, smart policymakers recognize that the U.S. has an embarrassing record on mass incarceration. This is something that um, overwhelmingly affects communities of color. um, And this is something that the U.S. has to take steps to rectify, both from a a budget standpoint, but just from a human standpoint. And, and, you know, I'm, I'm really heartened that, as I say, leadership in both parties are um, taking steps in, in that direction.
2: And very quickly, uh, on the Democratic side in the presidential race, I know that uh, Hillary Clinton, Martin O'Malley, and Bernie Sanders, if I'm not mistaken, have all come out calling for uh, criminal justice reform. On the Republican side, I believe Rand Paul has. Uh, do you have confidence in any of the other uh, the current candidates uh, leading or otherwise on the Republican side that you might find a partner uh, for uh criminal justice reform if uh if one of the republicans is elected and if so which one
3: well i think i think you know all of the you know the, the the main um candidates have spoken about the need for uh criminal justice reform and the need to end the drug war i think um you know both marco rubio and um chris christie have spoken out on this issue um i think there's a kind of collective recognition that, that the war on drugs has failed i also feel that um you know, going forward, uh, Republican candidates are going to realise that this is an issue that their base cares about, but perhaps more importantly for them, their donors care about this as well. Mm. The Koch brothers are, um, yep. you know, a, a big supporter of criminal justice reform and a big supporter of sentencing reform, and are certainly doing a lot of work here in Washington DC on that issue as well. So, not just you know between parties, but in terms of the kind of strange bedfellow of coalitions when you have sort of ACLU and the Koch brothers um, and and groups like the Heritage Foundation kind of all in the same room, rowing in the same direction. I think that's going to be... Um very impactful, both in Congress and on uh, presidential
2: candidates. You're right. Uh, If the Koch brothers are in favor of it, so are the Republicans. Michael Collins, Uh uh, great to talk to you today. Uh, Michael Collins is, of course, a policy manager for Drug Policy Alliance's Office of National Affairs in Washington, D.C. Get more information on the Drug Policy Alliance's good work at drugpolicy.org and follow them on the Twitters at drugpolicy.org. Org. Great speaking with you, Michael. Hope to do it again in the future.
3: Thank you so much. You take care.
2: Thank you, sir. Okay, a quick break, and we are back with the Green News Report to lighten things up, which never happens with the Green News Report, but it will today. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. Don't touch that dial. <laughs> Melting once again for Desi Doyen out here in Los Angeles where we are hitting record temperatures over the past week. Again. Again.
1: I mean, some all-time record highs broken, too. October.
2: October, and I think it was, uh, what was it, record for the most uh triple digit days in a row in downtown los angeles yes for this time of year yeah or ever i don't Uh, know i think it was the all-time
1: record for the (laughs) most but you know it's who knows it's hot baby it's hot
2: no it's not it's all a hoax all right uh speaking of which we might as well get to it uh this is from late last week but we didn't get to play it because we were uh, on the road so but i think it's all up to date uh here we go our latest Green News Report.
0: Let's just, you know, get through this thing and whatever it costs, it costs.
1: Senator Graham wants federal aid for South Carolina flooding, but voted against it for Hurricane Sandy.
0: We, the trade ministers,
1: are pleased to announce that we have successfully concluded the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Environmental groups slam the TPP agreement. New rules to protect farm workers from pesticides fracking companies wasting taxpayer money. Plus,
0: our economies, our livelihoods, and our food all depend on our oceans.
1: Two new marine sanctuaries for the U.S.
2: All of those stories and more straight ahead. From bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And
1: I'm Desi Doyen.
2: Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment.
0: You voted against that federal funding package during Hurricane Sandy. I don't really remember that. <laughs> really, Senator? You don't remember that? I don't really recall that.
2: Are you sure? No, we did check and you did vote okay. against that no, Hurricane I, I Sandy relief package. Look at it and tell you why. Yeah. Yeah. This is your Green News Report.
1: I'm gonna soak up the
2: sun. Okay, Desi Doyen, my mind is still blown by Senator Lindsey Graham and the amazing. Amazing hypocrisy.
1: Yes, in the wake of historic rainfall and catastrophic flooding in South Carolina caused by Hurricane Joaquin, South Carolina's Republican Senator Lindsey Graham, who is also running for president in 2016, took to the Senate floor to call for federal disaster relief funding.
0: As we get through this and look at the damages, we will ask only that is what what is responsible. We're not going to ask the federal government to do anything that's beyond... uh, The responsibility of the government. Uh Uh-huh.
1: But after Hurricane Sandy, Senator Graham joined with Republicans in opposing federal disaster funding for victims of that disaster. When confronted by that fact on CNN, Graham said he didn't remember.
0: So rather than putting a price tag on it, let's just, you know, get through this thing and whatever it costs, it costs.
2: The, uh, your critics are already saying you want federal funding to help the people of South Carolina. But correct me if I'm wrong, you voted against that federal funding package
1: for the folks in New Jersey during Hurricane Sandy.
0: Uh, I'm all for helping the people in New Jersey. I don't really remember that, <laughs> me voting that way. There was way. a big relief package, apparently, yeah. you, a lot of other Southern senators and yeah, representatives, I, I, voted against. Yeah, well, anyway, I don't really recall that.
1: Yeah, yeah, Not not ringing a bell. Oh, well. Meanwhile, U.S. international trade negotiators say the U.S., Japan, and 10 Pacific Rim nations have reached a final agreement on the largest regional trade accord in history, the Controversial Trans-Pacific Partnership, or TPP. Negotiated in secret, the full text still has not been released, but core provisions received mixed reviews from environmental groups. The World Wildlife Fund praised new rules to stop illegal wildlife traffic But other environmental groups like the Sierra Club urged Congress to reject the pact, saying it gives corporations the right to sue a government to overturn environmental regulations that might impact future profits.
2: So corporations will have the right to sue governments because environmental regulations, they will say, are hurting their bottom line.
1: Yes, that's right. Even if it's far into the future, they can still sue.
2: Sounds like a great deal. For Monsanto.
1: The Environmental Protection Agency has issued new rules to protect farm workers from pesticides on industrial farms. The first update to pesticide standards in twenty years. It includes the first ever ban on farm workers under eighteen handling pesticides.
2: Speaking of Monsanto.
1: Pesticide and herbicide use in the U.S. has soared with the introduction of genetically modified crops. Out of two million farm workers, the EPA estimates that ten to twenty thousand farm workers are poisoned by pesticides. pesticides. Pesticides every year Thanks Monsanto A new report charges that the drilling industry in the U.S. Is wasting taxpayer money By flaring excess natural gas Oil and gas companies burn off Natural gas out in the field Because it's too expensive to collect it for sale The new report from Friends of the Earth Calculates that more than half A billion dollars worth of natural gas Is wasted this way every year And calls on the Federal Bureau of Land Management To stop that flaring On public lands, saying taxpayers are losing more than $65 million worth of lost royalties.
2: That's those flames that are coming out of a pipe that you sometimes see when you drive by one of these fields?
1: That's right. Finally, some good news. President Obama has announced he's using his executive authority to create two new marine sanctuaries in the U.S. In a videotaped message to an International Oceans Conference, Obama stressed the importance of preserving the ocean.
0: Our economies, our livelihoods, and our food all depend on our oceans. And yet we
2: know that our actions are changing them. And today I can announce we are taking steps to create two new marine sanctuaries. One in the tidal waters of Maryland and another in Lake Michigan.
1: New studies report that marine life has declined in the oceans 50% since 1970. Chile has also announced it will set aside the largest protected area in the Americas, as will New Zealand.
2: Obama's a tyrant. For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, please check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Don't forget you can download our reports anytime via Stitcher, TuneIn, or iTunes. Find us and follow us on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. From bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman.
1: And I'm Desi Doyan, And this has been your Green News Report. And, of course, we should point out that uh, since we did that report, Hillary Clinton, presidential candidate, came out and said she was now against the Trans-Pacific Partnership.
2: She can't make up her mind, can she? <laughs> well. She's for, she's against, she's for the pipeline, she's against the pipeline.
1: And to follow up in South Carolina, they are still uh, they're still waiting for the waters to recede in some areas. Thirty seven thousand people have put in FEMA claims and they're supposed to be getting their help. So the process appears to be moving.
2: Well, thank God for the federal government. Imagine that. All right. My thanks to you, Desi Doyen, our producer, to Cynthia Cohn, our booking goddess. To our guest today, Michael Collins of Drug Policy Alliance at drugpolicy.org. Of course, my thanks to all of you for spending part of your day and or night with us. Greatly appreciate it. Oh, and thanks to Nicole Sandler for for giving us the last few days off. Coming up tomorrow, debate coverage. That's right. The Democrats are debating in Las Vegas. We will have full coverage right here on the broadcast in only the way the broadcast can cover such a thing. Until then, you can find me on the Twitters at the TheBradBlog. You can drop me email. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. And, of course, you can download today's show or any other at bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.